to look with me to the second chapter of the book of Joel. Uh, I challenge you to take notes this morning, and uh, if you don't do that on a regular basis, whether you do it in the margins of Scripture or you do it in a, a separate notebook or whatever, take notes. I hope that I say something profound enough on Sunday that it can guide your study of the Scripture throughout the week. I'm going to start in Joel 2 and then make my way back before we're done to the first chapter of the book of Joel, so hold your place there. I've chosen to read out of the New Living Translation this morning because I looked and studied out of several different versions of Scripture, and I usually use the more traditional versions, but today I just felt like the New Living Translation said it the way it needed to be said so that we could all, regardless of our level of spiritual understanding, we could all grasp the intent of the message. Verse 12 of Joel 2, this is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Okay, before I go on, Joel is writing, chapter 12 is, uh, excuse me, verse 12 is preceded by chapter 1 and the earlier verses of chapter 2 that are talking about how spiritually and morally depraved that the people of God have become. They are backslidden. They are away from God. They are living in moral depravity. Their hearts have become hardened. And Joel is telling them, listen, God's, the judgment of God's coming. And we're going to have to respond to him if we want to avert the judgment of God. So he says, that is why the Lord says, and he begins to turn to me now while it is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Verse 13, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Custom in that day was when somebody was sorrowful, they displayed the depth of their sorrow by rending their garments, ripping their garments and putting cloth, sackcloth or burlap and ashes on top of their heads. And God is saying through the prophet Joel, there are so many of you in the past because of religious tradition that have outwardly displayed a pity for your sinful condition, but in your heart it really wasn't bothering you. You really didn't have that burden. So he's saying here, I'm not really interested in whether you rend the exterior garment. I want you to rend your hearts. I want your hearts broken in reality, in authenticity, over the condition of your own life, the condition of the people of God, the condition of the nation. Return to the Lord your God, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. Who knows? Perhaps He will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. The judgment of God had come upon them. They were, they were farmers. They were vine dressers. And the vine, there was a drought in the land. And locusts had come and devoured all of the fruit of the vine. They had lost their, their livelihoods. They weren't able to bring an offering to God. And He says, if you'll return to God... Perhaps He will bless you, He will send rain, He will remove His judgment and you'll begin to bring grain offerings because there's a harvest and wine to the Lord again like you did in days past. Blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem, verse 15. In other words, sound the alarm. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, even the babies, the infants. Pull them together. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. In other words, I don't care what's going on. If they've been planning a wedding for a year and they're about to walk down the aisle, drop everything. Even if you're a bride and a groom ready to walk the aisle, stop what you're doing. Drop everything. This is more important than anything else. We have to get the attention of God, let's come pray. 
And he said in verse 17, Let the priest who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep, be burdened between the entry room or the porch or the portico area to the temple and the altar. Let them pray. And they pray this, Spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become a mockery. In other words, Israel was God's privately owned treasured possession. You, as a follower of Christ, are His chosen people, which literally means a privately owned treasured possession. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke of unbelieving for unbelieving foreigners who say, Has the God of Israel left them? My strong desire this morning, for this morning, and over the next few weeks as I preach on this topic, is that the Holy Spirit would come near. That He would come near in this room as we worship, as we preach, as we pray. But more than just what He does corporately, that our hearts would hear an invitation from God personally to come close to Him. That the Holy Spirit would come close to us, but that our hearts would hear an invitation to draw close to Him. My prayer is that we become, in the next few days, maybe in the next few moments, overwhelmed with the reality, with the thought that the God of the universe is willing and even desires to hang out with us. That He wants to know us. The God that is so massive that He created all there is by the power of His spoken word. And yet He's so intimate and personal that He knows the hairs on our head. That the God of that universe really has a desire to hang out with me. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to know us in a very personal way. I've read a lot of books, heard a lot of sermons, even preached a lot of sermons on the topic of prayer. Most of them, even my own meager attempts have only clinically analyzed the subject of prayer and didn't really achieve the intended result. It never really, the book, the the sermon, the whatever I've read or I've done myself, didn't really create the craving in the heart of a person to draw near to God through prayer. My objective this morning is not to preach another sermon to analyze the concept of prayer. My heart's cry today is through the next few moments as we study this together that the Holy Spirit would begin to create a yearning, a craving, a desire in your heart to hang out with God, to get to know God, to be intimate with God, and to do that through the only avenue you can do that, through prayer. Uh, If we will listen this morning, I believe this with all my heart, if you will listen, As a person, if we will listen as a congregation, the heart of God is calling out to us. He is calling us to prayer. And in my own life, and I believe it is unmistakably clear in this room today, there is a heavenly calling, a distinct calling of God upon us as a congregation to know Him through prayer. Verse 17, Joel says that it is time for the leaders to weep between the porch and the altar. The porch was the meeting place of man. That's where we, even today in the country, we socialize out on the porch. It's the meeting place of man. The altar is the meeting place of God. And Joel is saying that in times of great need where the people of God have 
backslidden, their hearts have grown cold, they're away from God, burdened leaders are going to have to come in between the wayward people and God. They're going to have to come broken and weep in between the place that represents man, the porch, and the place that represents God, the altar, and stand in between the porch and the altar in intercession, making up the hedge, standing in the gap, and seeking the face of God to intervene in the sinful affairs of humanity. Now, if you study the Old Testament, there are not less than 12 moments when that really happened. If you look through the Old Testament revivals or moves of God, you'll notice that every one of them is unique, and yet if you study them, there are some characteristics that are prevalent in each of them. One, one characteristic is this. In every case where God came down and visited with men in an extraordinary way in the Old Testament, it all began with a tragic decline. There was a season of when God's people who knew Him forgot Him, walked away from Him. They either worshipped idols or they got involved in sexual sin or all of the above. And and they turned their hearts away from God and there was this tragic moral and spiritual decline. One of the revivals you read about is in Exodus 32 and 33. It was a revival under Moses. And preceding that revival, the people in Moses' absence created this golden calf with all of their jewelry. And because God wasn't coming through for them the way they wanted, wanted and life wasn't working out the way they'd planned. They got bitter, turned their hearts away from God and began to put their worship upon this golden calf after all that God had done for them. It was a, it was a, it was a season of tragic decline. But preceding every great move of God in the Old Testament is a tragic decline. Morally, spiritually, the people of God became bankrupt. And you see God, because He's holy, He's righteous, He doesn't ignore that. The second trait you see in each of these Old Testament moves is the judgment of God comes to judge the sin. It's righteous judgment. It's redemptive judgment. It's not just to hurt people or whatever. It is to turn the hearts of people back to Him. So you see the righteous judgment in each of these cases where there is a tragic moral or spiritual decline. God steps in in order to turn the hearts. It's the same way my grandfather used to correct me and he says, I'm doing it, son, because I love you. Um, and in the same way, God's judgment is redemptive. And then the third thing you see and, and that is characteristic, out of all their uniqueness, at least you find these, th- these three things, tragic decline, the righteous judgment of God, and thirdly, you find God raising up an immensely burdened leader or group of leaders who are sick and tired with the status quo. They see what should be and they know that it's not And their heart begins to cry out to God for Him to intervene in such a profound way. To do what supernaturally that no man can do and turn the hearts of the people back to God. You study those revivals. Each of them are often referred to as the revival of so-and-so. It's God's move, but there's the revival of Moses in Exodus 32. The revival under Samuel in 1 Samuel 7. The revival under David in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. The revival under Asa in 2 Chronicles 14 and 16. Because in each case, there was a tragic decline, the righteous judgment of God, and then God would raise up an immensely burdened leader that would instruct the people to fast and pray and call upon God. And so each one of these, the revival under Jehoshaphat, he was the burden leader. The revival under Jehoiada in 2 Chronicles 23. The revival under Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29-32. through 32. The revival under Josiah, 
Second Chronicles 35, uh, 34 and 35. The revival under Zerubbabel, the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. The revival under Ezra, the, Ezra 7 through 10. The revival under Nehemiah, the first 13 chapters of the book of Nehemiah. And then the revival under Joel that we read about this morning in Joel chapter 1 and 2. There was always this immensely burdened leader that got sick and tired of the status quo and began to cry out to God. In each of these cases, God raised up a leader who was under a heavy burden for the moral and spiritual needs of God's people. If you look at Moses' situation, you'll find exactly how burdened Moses was and these leaders could be because in Exodus 32, God was really impatient with the people and, and, and he, he wasn't going to relent in his judgment. And Moses said to him, look, if you're going to blot them out, then blot me out too. I know that I'm the one that has a relationship with you. They know your ways, but I know you. And I care for these people. I'm their pastor. I'm their shepherd. I love them the way you love me. And I know you love them. But if you're going to blot them out, blot me out too. It was a picture of the burdened heart of this leader who knew that they weren't accepting. He wasn't accepting what was as what should be. And he began to cry out to God. He stood in intercession between the porch and the altar between God and man. And then finally, in these characteristics that you find in each of those, tragic decline, the righteous judgment of God, an immensely burdened leader, and then what eventually captured the heart of God was some extraordinary action by the people. And in each case, in the Old Testament, that extraordinary action was a prolonged season of supernatural, transformational corporate prayer. If you look in Joel, he calls it a solemn assembly. Or a sacred assembly. If you read the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll find that word, which is a corporate gathering where people were called together because they were aware of the sinfulness and the backsliddenness of the people. And they would come together and they would pray. They would fast. They would pray. They would rend their garments. But God said now, and Joel, now he's saying, rend your hearts. I want it to be genuine. I want it to be authentic. I don't want it to be public show. I want to come visit with you. But you have to be broken about your spiritual condition. And each time they came. Now, solemn assembly has its connotation. So I define the word solemn assembly as a prolonged season of supernatural, transformational corporate prayer. And every time there was this extraordinary action of prayer and it captured the heart of God on a corporate level and God responded. In the case of Moses in Exodus 33, Moses took a tent and he pitched it outside the camp a good distance from where the camp was and he called it the place of meeting and he required everyone to go seek the Lord outside the camp, outside where all the sin had been committed and go seek God away from the place of sin and God would come visit with his people in the tent of meeting. It was Moses' extraordinary action to move away from the sinfulness of people and capture the heart of God through revival of prayer. Joel did the same thing. He called for a solemn assembly. He didn't set up a tent, but the same concept. If if you're going to respond to the tragic decline and the judgment of God with this immensely burdened leader, in each of these revivals, there was an extraordinary action among the people to capture the heart of God. This season of supernatural corporate prayer did it again in the case of Joel. People were called to be in attendance. It says the elders were called. Even the infants were called. All of them were called to be in this thing. And it said it doesn't matter if you were a bride or a groom ready to get married. Drop whatever you're doing getting here because our nation is in desperate need. God is not going to relent in His anger much longer. We must seek His face and have His presence walk among us. I want you to consider the situation. 
it fits all the criteria of what I just said. There was a moral bankrupt nation, morally bankrupt nation. That was the tragic decline. And then you have the righteous judgment of God in Joel 1 and 2. There was a plague of locusts that had destroyed all their crops. And then there was a drought and nothing new would grow. And they didn't have anything to bring offerings. They didn't have anything to make a livelihood. So you got the tragic decline and the righteous judgment. And then Joel, the immensely burdened leader, steps to the scene and says, People, it doesn't have to be this way. The love of our God is unfailing. His compassion is never ceasing. But all he needs is for us to swallow our pride, swallow our arrogance, come humbly before him. He wants to respond. He's not doing this because he doesn't love us. He's doing this to get our attention. And the first inkling of any sign that our heart is turning back towards him, he's going to come. He's going to respond. And then Joel lists all of these promises that will happen. There will be fruit on the vine again. It will rain again. We will have offerings to bring to God again if we would just turn our hearts towards Him. And so He steps, if you you please, in a modern sense, in a gathering of church leaders, He steps to the microphone and says, "Uh, excuse me, in Joel chapter 1 verse 13, dress yourselves in burlap and weep, you priest. Well, you who serve before the altar, come spend the night in burlap, you ministers of my God, for there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of your God. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to Him there. You hear the burdened heart of this leader, Timothy Keller, The Presbyterian pastor defined prayer this way. I never thought of it. But I don't know if there's a better definition for the kind of prayer that I'm talking about than this. He said prayer is a rebellion against the status quo. Think about it. The kind of prayer that has this passion calling on God to intervene in the affairs of man is a rebellion against the status quo. Joe called this supernatural season of prolonged corporate prayer together this solemn assembly because it could not go on in the status quo. It could not be the way it was. It was Joel in his day rebelling against the status quo. The people prayed. They showed the extraordinary action of praying in an unusual, extraordinary way. And it captured the heart of God. And if you read the chapters of Joel 1 and 2, you will find out God did respond. He opened the windows of heaven and actually pulled the rainy seasons that normally had months of distance between them. In His sovereignty, He pulled the rainy seasons together so that life began to spring forth out of the land again. Fruit was born on the vine again. The wine press was full of grapes again. And the vats of wine began to overflow, the Scripture says, with new wine again. Because God's heart is compassionate. It is never failing. And it is just waiting on the first inkling of your heart to turn back to Him. It is just waiting on the first inkling of this congregation's heart to turn towards him and he has promised that he will respond if we would turn our hearts to him decades ago Elton Trueblood the great Quaker philosopher said in prophetic statement about the year 2000 now he said this decades before the year 2000 he said this by the year 2000 the church will be a conscious minority Surrounded by an arrogant, militant paganism. 
when you begin to realize that True Blood's prophetic assertion is true, we start to complain and say, yeah, but, you know, God moved in all these other seasons of revival, but it was easier then. People were more inclined to Him then. They weren't as far from Him then. And we complain about the sinfulness of our society and the negatives of our economy and the godlessness of our nation But we have to remind ourselves that Christianity was not served up to the world on a silver platter. Christianity was born in a sophisticated totalitarian society. It was born in the greatest empire the world may have ever known. The great military might of the Roman Empire. It was walled in on one side by the might of the Roman Empire. And Christianity was walled in on the other side by the intellectual philosophies of Greek uh, thought. And, and it, was being, it, it had every reason not to survive. Greek thought tried to undermine it. Gnosticism tried to undermine it. The military might of Rome attempted to stop it. And if that wasn't enough, you had the Jewish tradition of religion trying to think they had a monopoly on God trying to stop anything about Jesus from going further so they martyred those who believed it and killed them and all of the things that went on those men of the New Testament and women who turned the world upside down were they had no colossal or extraordinary intellectual capacity they had no financial backing they had no social standing matter of fact they were some of the most despised men in all of Jerusalem and yet the commentary about their life is that they turn the world upside down and the only answer for that is that every page you look on the book of Acts whether it's in a house or a cottage or at the gate called beautiful or at the temple they're always with somebody praying that God would break into their culture they were people of supernatural corporate transformational prayer and God moved in and empowered the inadequate to do the supernatural and we can give all of the reasons of why it can't happen in our day but it is doubt it is unbelief and our prayerlessness is a show of our unbelief but the God that broke in for every one of those revivals in the Old Testament and the God that established this thing in Roman militantism and in Greek philosophy in the face of Gnosticism and Judaism and yet let it become the fastest growing religion on the planet 2,000 years later is the same God that can break into the moral bankruptcy of this nation and the spiritual hard-heartedness of America's church if we will do the same thing. And it's not in our strategizing or our praying or our, or, or, or our planning or our charisma. It is in supernatural, transformational prayer. We will capture the heart of God and He will respond to His people. Dr. J.B. Phillips, the man that has given us the Phillips New Testament, an amazing translation that can help you in your study, said this. This is the church of Jesus Christ in reference to the believers in the New Testament church in the book of Acts. This is the church of Jesus Christ before it became fat and out of breath by prosperity. This is the church of Jesus Christ before it became muscle-bound by over-organization. This is the church of Jesus Christ where they didn't gather together a group of intellectuals to study psychosomatic medicine. They just healed the sick. This is the church of Jesus Christ where they did not say prayers, but they prayed in the Holy Ghost, and there is a vast difference. H.P. Hughes, at one time, the king of the Methodist pulpit in England It is said that when he would come home from a Sunday service and no one would come to faith in Christ, 
that he wouldn't even take off his long coat. But he would fall across his bed. He refused to drink. He refused to eat. And he would fall across his bed in deep sobs and burdens as a man of God. And he would say, why, why, why? The burden was so strong for the world to know Christ and a move of God so powerful that many would come to know Him. And it's staggering to me that we have gone from men like H.P. Hughes who walked with such a burden and to know that the Apostle Peter stood and preached one sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people will be saved and there will be more than 3,000 pulpits where sermons will be preached today around this country and nobody will come to faith in Christ at all and it won't seem to bother one single soul about that reality. I think we're living in a critical hour in our history, the most critical hour we could live. The Middle East is ready to blow up. The prestige of our nation has faded. We are days away from defaulting on our national debt for the first time in history. And it's easy for us to blame all of the external factors. We can look at biblical history and find out that's a mistake. Because immediately prior to every Old Testament move of God, you see God less interested in the evil of the world and more grief-stricken by the sin of His own people. There's a, you know, we can point at all the evil in the world and complain about all that's wrong with the world. Listen, it's a fallen world. It's supposed to be evil. And when you look at the Old Testament moves of God, His attention was not on the evil of the world, but the sin of His own people. His argument was not with the Amalekites or the Hittites or any other ites that caused problems for the people of God. God's problem in the Old Testament was Israel. And God's problem today is not liberals or Muslims or atheists. God's issue today is His own people. We are worldly, we are complacent, we are prayerless, we are compromised. And and what we need doesn't cost us a penny. Revival, a move of God to touch our hearts doesn't cost us anything but a group of people who lay across the altar with a broken heart and say, God, we can't do this without you. Now we can stage a revival, a revival, quotes, Call a preacher in, have a meeting for a few days. We can do that. We can even plan a citywide crusade. But you can't stage a genuine move of God. Revival is mysterious. It is spontaneous divine intervention. And one of the most awesome tasks given to any man that ever lived was John the Baptist. And his commission was to prepare the way of the Lord. And I believe with all of my heart, God wants to break in. He wants to visit with this nation. He wants to visit with this city. He wants to visit with our families. He wants to come visit with you in your living room. And our objective is to hear that call, that like a puppet master pulling on the strings of a puppet, tug our hearts to prayer today so that we, through prayer, might prepare the way of the Lord. It may not look like you expect. God is so sovereign that He doesn't want any generation or any group of people to feel like they have a monopoly on what he can do so he comes differently yeah the same biblical theological concepts but he breaks in unexpectedly and uniquely and the key to the revival in Joel's case was that statement in verse 17 that the ministers of God would stand between the porch and the altar and weep the generation that knew how to pray is dying off Now, it scares me. 
I've been at this going on 21 years, and most of my life I've always felt like, you know what, I don't have all the answers. I can pick up the phone and call somebody. I don't have all the answers, and, 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 and you know what, if I get busy today and, and I'm pastoring or busy today and I'm a student and I'm studying for my doctorate or I'm busy today, you know what, so-and-so's out there praying. That's all they do is they pray, they pray. But those so-and-so, they're not there all the time anymore. My grandfather's gone to heaven, the generation before me that knew how to pray. I know a lady that I pastored years ago who had lost her mind with Alzheimer's and sat in a nursing home. She had a little black book full of needs of the church and a little black book full of the names of missionaries. And she sat in that nursing home and she was out of her mind. She couldn't recognize me when I walked in, but she would grab that book every day and she would pray over the names written in that book in a season of intercession standing between the porch and the altar. She was, as Colossians said, in Christ and she was ministering in Christ through prayer preparing the way of the Lord the generation that knew how to pray is dying off and there is a great degree of responsibility that's falling on our shoulders and maybe the reason I'm fearful this morning is because we are a digital generation a technology driven generation and everything happens fast and it happens right now so if we call a prayer meeting for God to come and there he doesn't do any dances in the sky and there's no lightning or no comets flash no ballerina that come dancing by we just assume he hasn't heard us the heavens are brass and we go on about our business God doesn't work on our timetable and the prayer is less about getting God's attention and more about getting our hearts right with God he's sitting on the go as with, the, with bridles on waiting on us to turn our hearts towards him so that he can unleash his presence and his power in our lives he's willing that none should perish but that all should come to everlasting life and that's not going to happen because we're smart enough, good enough, or strategize enough. It's going to happen because we pray. I hear of Payson. He was a prayer warrior. His last name was Payson from Portland. He was an intercessor. He lived in the 1800s. And it was said that the hardwood floor beside his bed where he knelt to pray was hollowed out where his kneecaps had wallowed crevices in the hardwood floors when he prayed. Or what about men like Jonathan Goforth who who prayed a revival into China? Or John Hyde, a great man of prayer of the last century? Or you want to be moved about prayer? Read the life of David Brainerd, the missionary, the man that battled tuberculosis who would go out sometimes in snow up to his chin and pray from sunrise to sunset in a a body filled with tuberculosis. When I read about the prayer life of a man like that, I'm convicted. You know, I hear people talk today, Pastor, if what we need is a move of God so that signs and wonders and miracles come. You know, we're, we're not going to debate this country in. We're not going to argue this country in. We're not going to preach this country back to God. We need the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. And believe me, I, I believe in the heart behind that statement. I really believe the church is living what, less than what Jesus died for and he died to empower his saints to pray and see the sick recovered, the blind see, the deaf hear. I believe that. So don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But America has had more healing crusades in the last 60 years than all of the nations of the world combined and we are further from God than we have ever been. 
So the question I ask is, if there's an outbreak of miracles that happen the way we want to happen, is that really the answer? I really think what we need more than an outbreak of miracles is we need the church to start acting like Jesus and Christians to turn back to God. If we had a revival of holiness and a revival of character and a revival of people who laid themselves before God selflessly before Him and laid their lives on an altar, if God chose in His sovereignty not to perform one more miracle until the rapture of the church, America could turn its heart back to God if Christian people would just start acting like Jesus. No man, I don't care how colossal his intellect, his financial backing, his education, no man is greater than his prayer life. It's one thing to do what I'm doing today and stand before men on the behalf of God. It's humbling, but it's altogether a different thing to stand before God on the behalf of men. And that's what prayer is. To stand between the porch and the altar and say, God, my family needs you. My kids need you. There's a generation, and I've got to make it unless you intervene. Our nation needs you. Our church needs you to stand before God on the behalf of men for our families, our church, our nation, and our world. Pastor Bear, if you would come. A few years ago, the Lord spoke to me. I was studying, actually, in my office. I mean, studying the Bible. That's a pretty sacred thing, getting ready to preach a sermon. And it wasn't as if the Lord was telling me to quit that, but He was reminding me my answer for the future and the vision in my heart was not in that alone. He said to me, Brian, the future in your heart, in the vision I've put inside of you, the vision of this church, it's in the prayer closet. And if you want it, it's there for the taking, but go get it. It's in there. In other words, anything of significance that's going to happen for the kingdom of God in your life or in this church is going to happen because you birthed it in prayer. You know, I'm weary of the rat race. In a few weeks, I'll be in a gathering of several thousand pastors and I would cover your prayers the first week of August. I have some leadership responsibilities in front of them that are rather daunting. Some controversial issues in front of us. We'll sit around as we often do and we'll forecast and we'll strategize and we'll come up with programs to fulfill the Great Commission. We do that here in this local church. I mean, those things are important. Trying to figure out what works and striving, trying to say, God, how do we do this? we got this vision and we're working hard to get it done. And when it's not happening, we just work harder and we grit our teeth. And I'm weary of that. You know, I, I sit in meetings that last for hours here sometimes and nationally and other meetings and parachurch organizations. And we sit there and we plan and we talk and we strategize and we birth programs and we talk about things we're probably never going to implement. My thought is if we'd just spent this many hours praying, we'd have gotten more accomplished and talking about things we're never going to do anyway. I, 
I, I, I know that you, you can go in a room and pray and never put any legs to your prayers. And I understand all that. I just think we're more action-oriented and think that we're not doing anything if we're praying when in reality when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. You know, I just want Him to come. I, I just, I don't want to have to put on the best show every Sunday to keep people coming back. I don't want to feed a prize in the box generation that you got to keep pulling a rabbit out of the hat for folks to want to come back to church. There's a hole in the heart of humanity. And if God will show up, we don't have to be the best at everything for people to come and drink from the fountain of living water. But we're not going to be that way unless we pray. You know, I, I've approached the pulpit a lot of times. A lot of it because of my own guilt for my own prayerlessness. Out of my own conviction, preach a message where my, old, my own goal was to make people feel the conviction of God that would guilt them into praying. I've been in those meetings and I've committed to pray and I walked out and as soon as the guilt trip was gone and the condemnation left, I quit. I went back to the routine. I pray a lot, but sometimes it's a lot about nothing. And I really believe God is asking me to come stand between the porch and the altar. He's calling us to pray. He's calling us to abide. I just want Him to come. I, I, want, I want the God of the universe to hang out with us. And instead of being condemning today, and you know what, I'm probably the, I'm probably the problem. <laughs> so I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. I, I'm I'm guilty. I get busy doing good stuff and don't do all the right stuff. And so this is a confession as much as it is a sermon. But what I want, my heart, is that supernaturally the Holy Spirit would do what I can't do. Instead of making you feel guilty about all the stuff you don't do, is that there would be this anticipation and this longing in your heart that really the God of the universe wants to hang out with me. Yeah, He does. He wants to walk with you. He wants to be intimate with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know Him. And there's this upward calling to pray. I want to get right with Him. I want Him to have my heart. I want to return to Him with all of my heart in holiness and purity and righteousness. Give me, give Him my life. You know, I think about it a lot. I hope God lets me pastor this church until I'm an old man. And if he does, at the end of it all, I don't want somebody to say, man, that church was good because they could program well. That church was good because the preacher learned how to preach. It was good because they had great worship or it was good because whatever. At the end of my life, if, 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 we become a praying church and people say God does some special things there and they don't even know the name of the staff but they know that church is a praying church that's what would thrill my heart we're not there yet I'm not there yet but I really believe there's a tangible audible into our spirit voice calling us to prayer this morning 
Pastor Bear asked me when we came in, how are you going to end the service? I said, I don't know, Bear. I pray about that as much as I do the sermon. I don't really know how. I don't know what to do. Because what I want to happen, I can't do. And so, I'm going to pray a blessing over you in just a moment. And then, I'm going to ask Pastor Bear to keep the environment prayerful. And whether you feel the burden of God to respond to an altar today and begin to weep and pray and seek the face of God, I want you to know between now and the next service, we're just going to leave the environment open for the burden of prayer to come into your life, for the presence of God to step into your heart. If you're away from God today, there's no better time to come running back to Him. In a few moments, Haley and I will be down at the connection place in the cafe and we'll have the chance to meet and greet guests. But right now, I want the Holy Spirit to do what I can't do and just put a craving in our hearts. A.W. Tozer said, I thirst to be more thirsty still. Lord, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you let your compassion that never fails, your face, be turned their direction, Lord? Be gracious to them and give them peace. And Lord, I humbly ask as the pastor of this church, I'm I'm praying it for me, but God, I'm praying it as a voice for this congregation. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Walk with us. Talk with us. And do through our prayers what we'll never be able to plan and strategize. Cover this earth and break into this community. And turn the heart of this church towards you today, Father. In Jesus' name. The altars are open. You are free to go as the Holy Spirit releases you. There is no formal benediction, but you're welcome to wait upon God today.